0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books and Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobana Xavier and I'm one of your co-hosts of this podcast channel. I hope you are staying well and safe wherever you are. And I thank you for joining us today. As you may know, each new episode of New Books and Islamic Studies features an author who has published a book that is relevant to the field of Islamic studies as it is broadly defined, and we have a conversation with them. Today, we are joined by Professor Tabasim Fahim Ruby, who's an Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Westchester University in Pennsylvania to talk about her new book, Muslim Women's Rights, Contesting Liberal Secular Sensibilities in Canada, which was published by Rutledge in 2019. The book follows the debates and public discussions that surrounded the proposed Sharia tribunals in Canada from 2003 to 2006. In our close readings and discourse analysis of the public and media scrutiny that followed this discussion, Ruby found that these debates existed at the nexus of complex assumptions of human rights discourses, liberal secular sensibilities, and law, which all hinged on narratives of Western modernity and progress, and were set against notions of Muslim women's rights and agencies, or lack thereof. By tracing Islamic family law and practices of faith-based arbitration in Canada, the study problematizes conceptions of multiculturalism, secularism, and human rights discourses while further contributing to the discussion of contemporary Islam and gender by drawing on post-colonial, anti-racist, and transnational feminist studies. The book will be of interest to scholars who think and write about women and gender in Islam, especially in Canada, the United States, and Western Europe, along with those who are interested in human rights and Islamic law. It will also be a great text to include on courses on Islam and gender and contemporary Islam. In our conversation today, I spoke to Professor Tabasim Fahim Ruby about her intellectual journey and what led her to writing this book. We also spoke about the tribunals and the Arbitration Act in Ontario, um, which is in Canada, um, and situated some of the background and key players, and which then helped us unpack the conceptual framework that Professor Tabasim Fahim Ruby is introducing, known as the liberal secular sensibilities which um, led us to conversations around Orientalism, Neo-Orientalism, along with discourses of multiculturalism and subsequent critiques of also multiculturalism and secularism. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Professor Tabassim fahim Ruby about her new book, Muslim Women's Rights, Contesting Liberal Secular Sensibilities in Canada. Hi, Tabasim. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your book, Muslim Women's Rights, Contesting Liberal Secular Sensibilities in Canada, which was published in 2019. Um, As you may know, we have a tradition in the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, that we would like to start our conversation with something a little bit more personal uh, about the author's intellectual journey. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, what your journey was to becoming a scholar of Islam, um, uh, perhaps some of the influential academics whose scholarship have informed your work and particularly what led you to write this book.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Ivana, uh, for inviting me first. And uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity um, to explain and discuss my book. So um if uh, I I can clarify one thing, um and that is that I do not see myself as a scholar of Islam because that is a very specialized field that requires extensive knowledge of uh, the Quranic, uh the Quran itself and then the Quranic traditions, um hadith, uh fiqh. But uh, and I see don't qualify um, doing that, but what I have done, and I see myself as an academic that is interested in the questions of Muslim women's rights, and positions. Uh, I position myself within the uh, post-colonial, anti-racist, and transnational feminist framework. So uh, in regard to your specific questions, what led me uh, to be interested in this uh, book is that, I think if I go back and see myself as a teenager, I was reading chronic um, uh, translations and I can I can pause and reflect on, especially specific verses that now we can call them as um, part of the Islamic gender discourse, which means that specific verses related to some um, some rulings but also some ideas about uh, men and women's roles so i always been interested in uh, in that um in that kind of um, um reflection so well and i always know that as i started my my graduate studies that i want to focus on muslim women's rights that is something that is appealing to me that has personal relevance um to me and so the subject matter was quite clear to me. Nonetheless, how do I um, focus and and have a case study, so to speak, or specific uh, focus for my PhD research? I It was a, a little bit difficult um, for me to come back to um, and say that this is what I want to do. That is the Ontario Sharia, Sharia Tribunal's debates. And they were few key reasons, as I also have discussed in my book, and one was that those debates are very fresh. Uh, usually, in order to go back and reflect on, you li- need to have a little bit more uh, time, what had happened, but they were just happening simultaneously as I was also approaching uh, my my topic for my PhD research. And the other key reason, as I also started with that, I'm not a of Islam, like I don't have those qualifications to um, qualify. But then I also realized that they have social uh, dimension, and those social dimensions also uh, are rooted the way in which the f- uh, debates were uh, framed about Sharia law the, um, arbitration acts. They were. I was uneasy with them. And when I started to recognize what exactly that I am finding problematic about them was that they were very much rooted into Orientalist discourses that um, have been informed, at least since the um, 18th century, that's that, that in country. So that realization led me. Uh, to explore them further and see what assumptions are built into those um, debates that um, the, the critics then they were opposing sharia tribunals but what are their uh, arguments how they are presenting those arguments and what assumptions are built into their um, their arguments so um, their realization um, when I realized that, I also realized that these are the broad uh, assumptions, they are also built into um, the gender feed of Islam and gender, and that is victimizing narrative that Muslim women are uh, victimized um, and hyper-patriarchal religion and um Hyper patriarchy cultures that they live in, and religion is a form of oppression. So all of those ideas, starting from the colonization that we see, they were built into uh, those arguments. So uh, that led me to unpack them and and make my interest even more um, pronounced in those um, uh, in the book.
1: Mm. Um, I would say that in our, in our podcast, and I think a lot of our audience know this, we take a very expansive approach to Islamic studies. So I think the topics in your, in your book are definitely going to be relevant to a lot of scholars who listen to our podcast and who think about Islam from various disciplinary angles. Um, so um, I just want to say that in, in terms of um, understanding um, Islamic studies a little bit, at least from our our platform here, I wonder if you could take a little step back, actually, and talk a little bit about um, this case study that you introduced in your in your book. Um, um, this is perhaps a little bit more familiar to some of our Canadian listeners, but we have quite a bit of an international audience and a global audience. Mm-hmm. So for folks who may not know anything about this, who may not know much about Canadian Islam, perhaps. Um can you perhaps walk us through the particularities of the the case before we go into some of the thematic analysis that you do in the book about the Ontario Arbitration Act and the um what it meant the faith-based arbitration meant for the um, potential introduction of Sharia tribunals um, and the debates that unfolded that took place from 2003 to 2006, which you unpack in this book. So can you tell us a little bit about that and perhaps some important points that the listeners should know before we go into our discussion about your analysis of it?
0: Yeah, thank you uh, for, yes, that background is important. So uh, Ontario Sharia tribunals between, as you said, 2003 and 2006 uh, were the debates when um, Islamic uh, uh, of society, they made an announcement that Muslims now can resolve their family dispute through faith-based arbitration. And that public announcement led to a global movement against uh, such tribunals. Now, a, a few um, clarifications, I, I think uh, they are important here. One is that the Arbitration Act, the Ontario Arbitration Act, itself allows any private arrangement that couples uh, may have to resolve their family disputes and uh, say they want to separate or divorce. So that provision was already there. So in because of that provision, um, it was... Um, Muslims were resolving their faith based, uh, resolving their family dispute through faith based arbitration. And so to other religions like, um, uh, uh, Christianity and Judaism, they were, uh, those laws were also implied. So, um, it was nothing new per se from that perspective that they were asking uh, any special, um, treatment or asking any special law, uh, that arrangement was already um, built into Canadian Ontario law, arbitration law. So what that public announcement made was that perhaps this uh, misconception um, that uh, somehow Canadian government has given a special permission uh, to Muslims. uh, And when we say Sharia law, we also need to think that what usually an average uh, Canadian was imagining at that moment uh, because we usually have a very negative connotation about sharia law. And in this case, it was very specificly uh, defined, very limited way, which means that uh, people can, um, uh, when they are seeking divorce, they can apply Islamic laws. And also, that was uh, restricted to inheritance laws. And again, inheritance law anybody, as we know, that we can make up with, and then that will become as um, um, that this is how um, the assets are um, distributed. So, that is also given in civil laws or in Canadian laws. So, from that perspective, even though uh, those provisions were already built into civil laws, but the whole idea, because of the Uh, negative uh, images that uh, most often many uh, Westerns have provoked an idea that as if uh, Canadian government had given a specific or special um, permission to allow Sharia uh, laws in Canada, and then the, the global campaign, and I also must include here that many of the critics were opposing uh, such tribunals um, themselves were also Muslims. And that their interventions are also part of the whole outcry that uh, the Canadian government should not allow any um, special permission uh, to uh, Muslims. So that was the uh, background uh, for that um, global campaign. And when I say global campaign, it was literally people were protesting across um continent uh, protests happen in europe uh, against them the argument was that if uh, this is happening in this is going to happen in Western countries just imagine what is going to happen in Muslim countries again the presumption was that they are hyper, we are hyper patriarchal uh, hyper oppressive uh, to muslim women so they were what we call now saving muslim women uh, that was an narrative so that was the background in which uh, that public announcement led to the global campaign and then people, human rights organization, women's rights organization, they lobby against such laws.
1: And I think what the book does is a really great job of going, of parsing out some of the, the pieces, the voices, the complex uh, voices that were involved in kind of the public discourse in media at that time. Um, And so we're talking about a period before Twitter and social media, but like we're talking about news media, public media, who are really engaged um, with this topic and really concerned and so many voices were invested. And you're helping the reader, you know, parse out some of these significant pieces. Um, And so one of the broader, um, um, I would say, conceptual frameworks that you're introducing or thinking about in these particular um, Sharia tribe book tribunal you know, discourses that are taking place is this idea of liberal secular sensibilities. And I think this is important to much of the discussion that unfolds. So can you tell us what you mean by this um, this framework and how that helps us think about what's how this um, uh, tribunals or faith-based arbitration is being discussed in the public sphere?
0: Yes. Um, so as you said, that um, over the three uh, years or so, or just uh, less than uh, three years, um, Uh, This uh, tribunal or idea of the proposal of um, family-based arbitration was uh, discussed in legislation, uh, legislative debates, uh, news media, TV shows, uh, radio, special uh, task force, or um, um, special... um, special people uh, who are um, also thinking about, um, and these, they have lots of um, um, organization um, a- around that, people who are talking about um, women's rights. And every single one of them, if you just uh, look at them, the language they were using is very much what I call liberal secular sens- sensibility. And that is the idea of rights, freedom and equality. And it was built around uh, this idea that if we allow these faith-based arbitrations, uh, and when I say faith-based arbitration through these, um, uh, these debates was very clear that they are specifically talking about uh, Sharia-based arbitration. In fact, there were some arguments made that other religion should be allowed to resolve their uh, dispute, family dispute, through their religious laws, namely uh, Christianity and Judaism, and why would they suffer because of the patriarchal structure of Sharia law. So as a side note, I just want to make sure that when we we say faith-based arbitration, uh, we are specifically talking about Sharia-based arbitration. So all of those um, debates are built into this idea that if we allow um, um, Muslims resolve their faith-based uh, their family dispute through faith-based arbitration, then women's rights are going to suffer. And then that led me to explore the notion of rights, freedom and equality. And this is what I uh, see their liberal sensibilities. And as we are familiar with uh, with this idea that the notion of rights and freedom and equality, they are very specific. They have history, they have genealogy, and they are very specific to uh, the Enlightenment ideals. They have roots in their um, uh, Western reform uh, movements, but also specifically in uh, Western philosophical traditions. Uh, At a specific period of time, um, we see the idea of rights emerging and uh, Western philosophers specifically talking about um, the notion of rights. But we also know that in the beginning they were very restrictive. So only, only white men can have rights. Of course, people of color were exempt. Women were exempt. They were seen as too emotional. So we have the idea of rationality here built into these liberal secular sensibilities that the rational thought is the supreme, um, form of of thinking and only of course at particular period of time men could qualify. Women were too emotional to qualify, and people of color were also disqualified. So race and gender was built into um, the notion of rights and freedom. But we can also see that over time how uh, those sensibilities became more inclusive and it was no longer uh, possible for them to exclude Uh, women, and then people of color, at least ideologically, Uh, they have to allow other people to. So it is a historical process, a very specific time period that we are going. And then they were also very much uh, built into the modernity project. So if you want to be a modern. Um, you need to be secular uh, in a sense that uh, we have this dichotomy between religion um, that is uh, associated with tradition and then modern uh, that is um, more progressive. So all of these binary thinkings are built into these liberal secular uh, sensibilities and liberal secular sensibilities it's not they, just that they are built on this binary thinking, who is rational, who's traditional, who's um, uh, progressive, who is uh, not, but they are also built into hierarchies. And then of course, if you associate yourself with religion, automatically then uh, you are, according to uh, the secular sense standards, then you are not modern, you are not progressive because, these categories or these um, ideals, uh, liberal secular, sensibly present themselves within the marching forward. So, Christianity was once also not that reformed, but we, because it has reformed now, it is more modern, more inclusive, better. Um, and within that narrative, women's rights are also uh, protected within liberal secular sensibilities. So um, if you if you fall under uh, religion, then the automatic assumption is that um, this is not a very progressive way of living. So I hope that is clear uh, what I mean by liberal secular sensibilities, but if uh, is there anything that um, think that I should
1: flush out? I'm happy to do that. Yeah, no, I think it is. And I think um, it really gets us uh, sets us up for some of the other themes that emerge in the book. Because um, I think as these conversations around the potential of having um, Sharia-based tribunals emerge in Ontario, um, in the province of Ontario and Canada, you're kind of showing how people's you know, prejudices and perceptions of um, what they're framing as religion, but they really mean Islam, are coming out, right? And then so... Yeah. And one of the ways that you do that is highlight, you know, all this kind of Orientalist uh, prejudicial, you know, almost bigoted ways in which Muslim women are framed or Muslim world is framed or Islam is framed. And and you do that in chapter two, where you talk about, you kind of, parallel some of the ways in which Edward Said discussed this idea of Orientalism, but you're seeing some of those discourses emerging again during these conversations. And you're also introducing this idea of neo-Orientalism. So can you um, unpack that a little bit for us in terms of what you mean and what kind of perhaps ways were, you know, Muslim women framed in these discourses as, you know, without agency or as homogenous or in singular ways, as you're kind of highlighting in your previous um answer to the question of liberal secular sensibilities I think these are kind of intertwined with each other
0: yeah yeah. so if we if we see that how orientalist language now is more framed into modernist language that is the notion of rights and freedom and equality it's just the change over that we we see in the language and now we use mm. uh, because I think because we have figured it out that it is not going to be serve us uh, well if we just keep saying that uh, Western world is, is um, more, uh, is period based on just race, but we have, have to replace the idea of race uh, with something that is more, uh, or pro- or more acceptable or has subtext, and then we give a culture or this is their culture, this is how we engage in. So the, uh, uh adversaries, I am, um, uh, analysis of, of, of the Orient is very relevant here in a sense that it's a contrasting image that what Edward said calls that there is always this contrast is happening that or, or how um, Orientalist, uh, Orientalism um, um, is presented as a contrasting image uh, to the Western world and uh, Western world uh, and is always uh, better, always um, progressive, Liberated, and um, if we go into a little bit further, then if this is what we are also seeing in uh, anterior Sharia-based uh, arbitration, uh, how do we make sense of this idea? Then, then, then there are uh, there there are some a handful of uh, Muslim groups themselves who are also using the same language, who are also presenting Muslim women in the similar manner as we see uh, in, pre- they are presented in Orientalist uh, discourses. So this uh, um, has to be uh, understood then um, in, a, in a framework that makes that not only unpack, um, that is not going to unpack Orientalism, but also shows uh, new uh, dimensions or new uh, way of presenting um, presenting Muslim women by them by Muslims themselves. So how do we make sense of that? Of course, uh, we we uh, we uh, we don't want to present uh, uh, this idea that they were representing. So there are a few things here. So. One is that those vocal groups, media keep coming back to them, and they have, have support behind them. So we need to uh, realize that why those c- people who were really opposing um, and, and the Sharia uh, tribunal's uh, proposal, why they were at the forefront. Uh, what gave them that legitimacy that they can represent um, the whole Muslim community, even though uh, they it is uh, they never. Present themselves. If you look at their numbers, um, we, we, don't, uh, we can see that their representation is quite uh, uh, low. But even though if we don't want to go into that direction, then we want to see they present themselves as Muslims and we are not questioning their faith here. The question that I'm taking up here is that how they are using the same language and how can we make sense of that? So when they are using the same language, which means that um, they also present that Muslim women are going to be um, uh, oppressed if they use faith-based arbitration. They use the same language, victimizing uh, victimhood uh, within uh, hyper uh, Sharia, hyper patriarchal Sharia uh, tribunals. So. If we unpack their ideas, they lead us to the same Orientalist framework. Nonetheless, there is some changeover, and that is uh, that now uh, they present themselves a- as good Muslims. So now the good Muslims are doing this work, and this good Muslim, bad Muslims, uh, Mahmoud, uh, Mamdani's um, work is also uh, quite key here, in which he uh, he, he presents that how Muslims themselves are categorizing: there are good Muslims and there are bad Muslims. Of course, good Muslims are those Muslims who are already secularized, liberal, uh, who present themselves with uh, with uh, Western ideals, and then there are bad Muslims who take religion um, and uh, and say that um, this is the contrast that we we uh, we have they are bad they are antithetical to uh, the idea of uh, secularism and western uh, modern western ideals so we already have that framework built into that but and so this is what i'm trying to unpack here that uh, we have muslims themselves again i we are not questioning their faith we are just questioning the way in which they present it um, the uh, case of Sharia tribunals and they use the same language as uh, Orientalist um, framework uh, they use and that they present themselves that as insider we know this is what is coming as insider they present these stories in which they present that how Muslim women are going to suffer if we allow these Sharia tribunals and they give also then um, a voice to the Orientalist frameworks because now the insiders themselves are presenting the same um, danger that the larger Canadian society was already familiar with, um, that Korea laws are oppressive. So this gives them a legitimacy that we cannot ignore. So this is the point that I'm coming here: that as insider, they lend a voice. The already Islamophobic ideas that were well flourished after 9 11, especially they gained the, uh, the gain currency here. So, um, this is the point that I'm trying to unpack here that how the devices are also part of the larger narrative.
1: Yeah, because I think one of the interesting things about this case is that, you know, it the assumption may be that the the folks who were opposing the implementation of this arbitration or this uh, system would be coming particularly from non-Muslims. But I think in this chapter, you're talking about how it's coming from Muslim organizations in Canada as well, such as the Canadian Muslim Council or other organizations. And, and in that process, that perhaps they were also invoking kind of a neo-Orientalist attitude in terms of positioning Um, different kinds of Islam, right? And othering, as you're saying, good Muslims and bad Muslims. Um, And so that chapter was really interesting for that reason. Um, One of the other things that I found very fascinating was uh, your discussion of multiculturalism. Um, And I think it's really easy for folks to look at Canada and the Canadian context Mm -hmm. and really praise or be proud of kind of the multiculturalism discourse that Canadians have. But I think even now, in moments of like we see what's happening in Ontario with the bill there, uh, not in Ontario, sorry Quebec, what's happening there with um, the bills that are being proposed there that are again targeting particular and you know Muslim bodies. Um, how do you think you know this this case? Um, that's really kind of pitting Muslim women's rights and human rights and kind of the universal in the particular and kind of invoking the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom. Like, how is it all in uh, really puncturing or interrogating what we think about in terms of Canadian multiculturalism?
0: Yeah, this is very fascinating. And I do think that that question also goes beyond Canadian multiculturalism um, idea because if we are really um, allowing different kinds of life to flourish with different ways of living, that is at the, at, uh, or at least ideally should be at the uh, center of our polarity or multiculturalism, um, then we should not be that concerned about how other people are going to live their lives, especially. Um, uh, marriage is a very private matter, how people are going to get married or get divorced. Um, It is also contradiction, there is a contradiction here, just contradictory to the idea of individualism and and right and liberty, and um, that they are built into a liberal uh, framework and also multiculturalism. So if we are so concerned and we are going to have specific laws that they are going to, Um, they are not going to allow people uh, to live according to their faith, then I do see that the idea of multiculturalism is just uh, rhetorical. Um, It is an empty claim. All it can accommodate is that how liberal people are. And if you are outside of that framework, and liberal here means that according to the Canadian um, context, then um, it is not going to accommodate you. So we need to recognize that how, and I also have specific section under um, multiculturalism, that what is what is being accommodated is that that is the Canadian civil law and ironically both, uh, uh, projected as this is an, an inclusive law and not re- recognizing that it has, it is built into um, Western traditions especially christianity um, um, and built into the understanding of uh, what marriage means how people get divorced what those specific conditions are so it is really not accommodating anything that is outside of that liberal framework so this whole idea maybe at face value it might be appealing um to, uh, to people and that uh, we live in a society that is uh, very inclusive. But if you really um, try to go against the mainstream society, then you will see that, that that is not very inclusive inclusive society. And that goes not only in Canada, but also other Western countries. What is happening? You, you give the example of uh, Quebec, especially um, last around uh, uh, Muslim women's dress code, and we see uh, the same happening in in other contexts, in the U.S., in, in Europe. That if we are really that open, why all why all the time um, a headscarf is making headlines? Why it is so uh, so um, disturbing to see someone uh, walking down uh, the street and uh, having niqab? Like we yeah. have... What happened to our freedom then? If people are not going to allow to dress as they as they wish, and again, this uh, all of these um, laws and also uh, these discourses, they are going to make sense only if we are bought into this idea that this form of living is not worth living or is oppressive. Otherwise, um, I think it is going to be very difficult for us to justify. Um, having any law or any um, discussion around that.
1: Yeah, I mean when I was reading the book I was really kind of thinking about what's happening in France and even though France and Canada are very different situations in terms of history and the history of Islamophobia but Mm -hmm. it was fascinating to think that you know, it's it's the Muslim woman's body, it's the racialized body that continues to be politicized through all these different agendas that are political or framed in legal discourses. And and I think another thing that's coming up in this book is also this idea of the way that the secular is kind of mobilized as the this um, the neutral and universal that's applicable mm-hmm. to everybody. And and you discuss this in chapter four. And I really like that in chapter four, you started off with this um, this letter that was composed by 10 prominent Canadian uh, women, one of them, including Margaret Atwood, who's a famous Canadian writer, the author of a Handmaid's Tale, which is now famous because it's been made into a TV series. And so even, you know, these w- women coming from a feminist perspective are arguing for secularism as the only option in terms of the ways to move forward and to kind of make a binary between religion and secularism. I and mean, you really interrogate this, right? Drawing from Talal al-Saad and mm-hmm. Sabah Mahmood. Um, so how was, you know, secularism used again in this um, uh, these discourses of the Shari- Sharia tribunal mm-hmm. um, uh, conversations in Ontario?
0: Yeah. Uh, thank you for mentioning specifically uh, that letter. It is also, uh, it is really, really fascinating that how uh, many feminists that Sabah Mahmood also have um, uh, Really uh, examine this that for uh, feminists, any idea about religion um, just invoke this idea uh, that uh, we don't want to go uh, through that route because that is oppressive as if we all already have decided uh, what religion means uh, for women. And um, uh, these prominent uh, Canadian uh, women rights um, uh, feminists um, they sided themselves with secular ideologies, and they also present the same narrative. It is not only neutral, but it is also progressive. So this is the key aspect of liberal secular sensibilities that I'm uh, unpacking in this um, in this book: is that they are not just um, they are not just um, progressive, but they are also neutral. And anybody who stays outside of that necessarily is uh, opting for a very bad choice. So the choice is already being made for uh, for those folks who are not going to um, conduct their uh, social relations according to uh, liberal secular sensibilities. So for them, um, the secularism is not only only progressive, but also neutral. By this, what I, I mean is that, and this also goes back to what I said earlier, that there is, um, they, these uh, liberal secular, uh, frameworks, they are product of Western histories, Western, uh, ideologies, and secularism emerged as, as a result of Christian reform movements. So the idea here is that, um, when we were uh, living under religion, um, we were living oppressive um, life, and secularism was brought to as a rescue. That now we can flourish now, and so part of secularism uh, and secular ideology is that um, key aspects. One is that religion is a private matter. People, um, you can. Express yourself and do whatever you want to do, but um, that should remain in uh, as a private matter. When we come to and this is also part of their, their letter too that you mentioned that uh, public space should be, should not be um, infected by any religious ideologies. So there are also assumptions built into uh, this kind of framing that is public private sphere. And we know that feminists themselves have explored these these boundaries quite extensively and so it is quite interesting to see that how including muslim feminists who opposed um, the council and other um, organization who were uh, uh, opposing and and leading um protest and uh, opposition to uh, Sharia tribunals, they were also invoking the same ideas about public private spheres, despite the fact that we have quite um, extensive literature on that, that how these boundaries are not stable. It is very <laughs> impossible that we raise our upbringing when we, uh, when we enter into any kind of public space. Also, public space is—how uh, can we say that public space is not informed by the way we we orient up ourselves—and they are part of religion and cultural ideas. Uh, so it is a massive um, public-private sphere. Is also um, also a, a product of liberal secular sensibilities. Um, these borders are not stable, but they also go against Islamic ideas. Islam is not just about a private uh, religion. Islam is about uh, as you live your life, and, and that includes your your uh, all sorts of every sorts of uh, transaction that you have. Uh, it, it could be uh, personal relationships, it could be economic, um, political, anything, anything that we can can think of. So this idea that there is a public sphere, there is a private sphere, and religion should not be part of the public sphere is also a makeup idea that that, uh, liberal secular sensibilities themselves have produced. The other key aspect of secularism uh, that is important here is that the idea of rational thinking. I alluded to this uh, in the beginning that who can produce knowledge. Um, in the beginning, we do have this human rights framework and also uh, this idea of uh, based on western um, philosophical traditions that who can think who can produce knowledge and they were very much white western um, uh, heterosexual uh, male uh, who who can be can legitimately uh, produce knowledge. Of course, we change up those ideas. So all of this itself tell us that there is nothing in neutrality about them. They are made up discourses. As we move along with history, uh, we see what is working, what is not working, and then we adapt uh, to those ideas. And then uh, within that adaption, we say that, okay, we can let women um, uh, come here. We can let racialized um, people uh, and as if we feel uh, suited enough and they can also present some ideas and we can uh, make them also part or take part of those um, secular uh, discourses so we we are making them up as we are going along and, and uh, presenting ourselves more inclusive as we go along and face some fatigue so that itself tells us that there is nothing neutral about them. They are not universally uh, shared ideas. They are made up ideas, but here we are replacing also. We are replacing uh, what any given time a group of people or a human being can think about, this is how we are going to do this transaction. And that transaction could be, I'm using transaction in a very broad sense, um, it could be economic transaction, but it also could be any uh, human relation uh, transactions. That under these conditions, I am going to, I am going to agree to live with this person, or I am going to agree to uh, leave this person. And this is also something or we need to think more broadly that this liberal secular framework is doing. So we, what we are doing, we are replacing uh, religiously held ideas under what condition people can form relationships, how people can live, how can they do their uh, social businesses. And we, we are replacing them with uh, humanly um, imagined ideas that they seem good to us. This is how we are going to live. And then we make them relevant to all people, regardless of their own cultural or religious upbringing because we present them as uh, neutral and universal. So in, I see at the heart of um, secularism and pluralism um, this as problematic both um, at both fronts, fronts. Not only that they are not universal, but they present themselves as universal and relevant to everyone, but also we are changing humanly made laws, humanly made ideas, how life should be formed. And we are replacing religious um, ideas. But this changeover is not recognized as such. Rather, it is recognized that liberal and secular ideas are relevant and they are neutral, and therefore, anybody uh, should live accordingly.
1: And I think um, that mapping that you just um, expressed and also that is outlined in the book is really productive and really helpful, I think. Um, particularly using this really um, controversial, it seems like, case study um, in Ontario. Um, I I think the last two chapters of the book really take a a little bit of a shift in terms of approach. Um, The first half of the book or majority of the book is kind of unpacking all of these um, uh, issues and tensions that are circulating around the discussion of Sharia tribunals. And then the last two are really thinking about um, taking a different approach and tone, I felt, um, and so in chapter five, um, you know, you were kind of starting off by thinking about how this was a missed opportunity. So um, I guess uh, the audience should know that this was not, um, I guess, enacted or it, it didn't go forward um, after all of these debates. Um, and so some scholars, um, Islamic studies scholars, such as um, and amin are suggesting that perhaps this was a missed opportunity. And you also pick up on this thread and have a, a conversation about it. And so why do you think that perhaps this, the, the possibility of having Sharia tribunals or faith-based arbitration in Ontario um, was a missed opportunity, if, if, if that? Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, so I see it as a missed opportunity, um, as we we know that um, in Canada and this is true also in many other um, uh, Western countries, especially majority of Muslims are immigrants. Many of them are immigrants. They don't have um, extended family um, living um, in, uh, in 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 uh, close by where where they can um, if something goes wrong if. Of uh, marriage is not working out, where they can have that kind of extensive support system. And that extensive uh, fam- extended family support system, in the absence of that extended family support system, Muslim communities need to come up with some kind of uh, support system to address those issues that people may face if uh, they're, they're facing a marriage breakdown. That is one uh, way to think about or uh, one reason that I think is important to think about is as a missed opportunity that if we have put in place procedures and they are transparent, uh, they are easy to access, people know where to go if uh, they are facing marriage breakdown, if they are facing uh um, or if they want to write a will, they don't know how to write a will or or if they want to have that kind of support. So that is one piece um, that uh, Ontario did miss. If we had put in place that those kinds of procedures and processes and policies, it would have helped in other contexts too. And this is where uh, I see that not only the theoretical unpacking and the ideological uh, unpacking uh, and methodological unpacking that I'm doing in this book is that why it is relevant in other contexts too, as we also have talked in just um, a minute ago about uh, uh, France and uh, other contexts in which uh, these arguments are relevant. But Muslims are living everywhere um and it includes uh, non-muslim uh, countries as well as muslim countries so if we have a clear path okay if you are facing marriage breakdown these are the islamic uh, rules and regulations that you can apply and this is the procedure that you need to go through and these are the policies and make it easy and accessible and transparent it will help many many people to uh, know uh, what, what, they, what they need to do—they are facing a marriage breakdown. But then there are other aspects of, uh, of this uh, idea too that I shift that if both opponents and proponents fail to provide um, those procedures and also miss that opportunity was that we also need to recognize that uh, there are some key differences between civil divorce and uh, an Islamic divorce and. Um, one key aspect is that muslim women are not legally um uh, legally required to pay for either child support or for spousal support and all of their assets they are not subject to division which means that uh, their husbands have no right over their personal uh, assets belongings um and muslim women are not uh, according to Islam, required to pay any child support, and if these differences are not taken into account, then contrary to the, um, um, the contrary to those um, uh, folks who oppose Sharia-based tribunal, actually Muslim women's rights are at more risk if they go by through uh, civil divorce, because and. I personally haven't done that, uh, uh, those kinds of studies, but we know that there are studies as a result of specifically in the Sharia-based tribunals that some scholars have done studies and look at that how Muslim women actually are going to suffer because of if they go through um, uh, civil uh, courts, because what they can keep according to, uh, we are talking about financial, um, uh, financial, here or financial assets here we are. What they can keep financially if they go through civil divorce, um, meher for instance, what Muslim women acquired as at the time of their marriage, they are financially going to suffer, but we don't see those kinds of um, those kinds of uh, considerations happening in in civil courts as many studies have um, found both in Canada and in the U.S. and other um, Western countries, UK and other countries that uh, civil courts are not equipped to address uh, those kinds of financial differences. And as a result, uh, Muslim women do suffer financially. So that's another aspect why uh, I shift And see that um, it was a missed opportunity because we can bring those differences, the differences between civil court and Islamic, um, uh, civil divorce and Islamic divorce uh, to the uh, forefront and see, okay, these are the differences that we need to take into account. Another aspect is that since many people immigrate uh, to Western countries, uh, some of them or many of them, they don't register their uh, marriages. Because they are already married, they just continue with that. We are a married couple, but say that after a while they face a marriage breakdown, and since their marriages are not registered, how are they going to um, seek divorce? Because their marriages were not not registered in the first place. So again, and in those kinds of situations, then Islamic divorce is important, but. Um, And additionally, um, which is also um, for many, um, maybe the key reason uh, that it offers, it has spiritual aspect, uh, Islamic divorce. It offers some uh, uh, closure. Um, It is part of their uh, religious obligation. And as many scholars have documented that actually Islamic divorce, seeking Islamic divorce is, is uh, routinely desirable, and um, people seek uh, Islamic divorce even though they will get uh, civil divorce to satisfy the land of the land of the uh, law uh, wherever they are. So again, it goes back to this idea that if we are really um, truthful to the idea of uh, rights of um, rights and freedom and equality, then why we are depriving those uh, um, um, women who like uh, to uh, seek Islamic divorce because they see it as their uh, religious uh, obligation, responsibility. It gives them uh, spiritual uh, peace of mind. It gives them um, a right way, uh, right thing to do. And we are depriving them um, regarding that. If we, and that's why uh, I see that a multiple level as a missed opportunity.
1: Mm. Yeah, because it was never meant to be enforced as much as it was an option for those who wanted it, which is one of the things that you were discussing in the book, right? And, and so it's really fascinating to see um, how it was shut down and the ways that was, in which it was shut down. Um, I think the final chapter really then built on this and really um, brings the book together. And you, again, in this chapter, take a different approach and by kind of, Unraveling uh, and you know, kind of moving away from all the stereotypical ways in which Sharia is understood in kind of the contemporary Western moment, and you go back to the Quran and you draw from the Quran and think about how, uh, from a spiritual and metaphysical way, it potentially offers um, uh, these reservoirs which may be practical or helpful or could you know offer something that's you know not as violent as. Liberal secular sensibilities, and you introduce a, a Tawhidi paradigm in doing so, and so this is your last substantial chapter of the book. And um, can you tell us why you thought this was important to do, and what your intentions are in this final chapter of, of the book?
0: Yes. Uh, so uh, before I go, uh, let me just clarify that even though uh, the current uh, Sharia, uh, the current Arbitration Act in Ontario requires that anybody uh, uh, who likes to uh, in order to be diverse, be binding, uh, it has to be, it has to use interior Canadian law. Hmm. The door to faith based arbitration is still open because people can privately arrange whatever they want, uh, however they want to separate, and that still be okay? okay. So in practice, that did not change. Uh, okay. People can still, yes, so people can still. If they want, they can still um, uh, seek divorce um, and privately um, make those arrangements, and those arrangements still can uh, still are going to be recognized. So people privately can do whatever they want to. It is just that it is not going to be legally binding. Mm-hmm. And so that was something that was um, Muslims uh, who were lobbying to have Sharia-based arbitration. They were hoping to get the uh, legal binding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, clarify that that people can you know still that, yeah. see, yes people can still uh, seek a divorce and still can be, uh, make those arrangements yes yeah, so after doing this this was my thinking behind this chapter after uh, critiquing and un- unpacking the ways in which um, people who oppose faith-based arbitration um they their arguments were built into orientalist, Framework, and then they use the language of rights and freedom, enlightenment thinking, um, secular liberal ideologies, uh, dichotomy, uh, religion, and secularism. So, after all of this, and then realizing that it was a missed opportunity, and Muslims who themselves proposed they never put a clear uh, picture how they are trying to. Establish Ontario faith-based arbitration because they did not present a very clear picture of procedures and uh, and um, policies what they aimed, they were aiming to. So then I was uh, thinking that critique itself is not enough, and we need to open up spaces that if that was not an appropriate way to address. Uh, Sharia-based arbitration, then what do we need to do? And and that question led me to realize that there are bigger questions um, that um, they concern me. And those bigger questions are based on ideological, ontological, and epistemological differences between an Islamic um, perspective, orientation, and liberal secular one. And this is what, um, um, where I, I bring to uh, framework because by the framework um, what we mean, this is a primary uh, article of Islam, and uh, it points to oneness. And that oneness means that every single, um, this whole universe, every single part of it is connected to uh, another part of it. And we are part of this bigger universe as, Um, and we are also connected uh, with this uh, universe. We are not isolated beings. And that is also quite a contrast uh, between um, this um, idea that this universe is for us and we are going to use it however we want to use it and not building into the idea of accountability. In contrast... Um, because according to the Suhidi um, paradigm, we are part of this larger universe. We are accountable whatever we, we do, whatever we use, whatever uh, we utilize in our life uh, in our lives. And that accountability put us in a very different mindset that liberal secular sensibility presents as rights and freedom, and rational thinking. If we see ourselves that which our very existence depends on external forces, be air, water, food, and the mere fact that we didn't create them, and we are here to use them, that put us into a different kind of paradigm where we see ourselves as accountable being yes we are using them to sustain our life but because we didn't create them there is another creator who uh, we believe in and we are accountable whatever we are uh, using however we are living our lives it is a very different uh, uh, way of li- living human life on this earth as opposed to just uh, focusing on rights and not focusing on accountability and that idea, this is ideological,ly but also ontologically and epistemologically, because if we are not the creator, and we and this is also part of main human, main Islamic, uh, perspective that uh, we are here and we are going to die and we are accountable and we are going to held accountable of our our deeds, and therefore. Um, we are going to conduct ourselves responsibly and that uh, our guidance, and that's the epistemological piece here, how do we know that what is right and what is wrong? How do we know what is ethical and unethical? How do we know that um, if we do X, then we are going to held accountable and if we do Y, then we are going to held accountable? Where do we drive our guidance from? And for Muslims, that guidance comes from the Quran. Now, I'm not suggesting that um, more than um, um, 1 billion or 1.5 billion Muslims, uh, they all understand the, the Quran in a similar way. I, I'm not uh, suggesting that even uh, there is a uniform uniformity um, or one single idea is about what Sharia laws are, because they vary. And that is also part of the beauty of, of Islam, um, that they, they vary and they people understand them, or Muslims understand them, uh, according to their own spiritual, um, spiritual understanding, according to their own intellectual uh, understanding. That is not the point, the variations. The point is that even though there are variations, how do I understand what my responsibility is within that? broader uh, Islamic uh, framework. That puts me in a very different framework as opposed to someone who sees um, themselves as, as secular and then drive from their guidance through um, their own intellect and through their own um, or groups of people's own understanding. So we see that according to the Tahidi paradigm then revelation is the prime source of knowledge. It's not the human intellect. It's not the rational thinking as secularism is going to present itself. So that is a a key aspect. So in this chapter, then I'm trying to unpack the fundamental differences between an Islamic orientation that I take from the 30 points of view and liberal secular orientations um, that they... They stand on a very different platform and those differences, they need to be taken into account when we think about Muslim women's rights. So the idea of Muslim women's rights itself is not something that is just relevant to liberal secular ideologies. We see throughout Islamic history, people engaging in that, but nonetheless, there is a different which framework we are going to use when we are going to discuss that. A question are we going to take um, the Islamic uh, tradition pictures, uh, literature um, into account are we going to take secularly uh, secular and liberal ideas uh, ideas into account? So when we are thinking about Muslim women's rights, I think this is a fundamental question. That is key for me. And in this chapter, I try to uh, unpack uh, those big differences that they are key for Islam and gender um, discourse, regardless of what the question is whether it's a question about um, Ontario faith uh, arbitrations or it is a question in other
1: contexts. And I think that's a really um, good place for us to. Kind of reflect on the overall contributions of the book i think overall the book is really helping us think about islam and gender and secularism and liberalism and rights discourses right and i think that the final chapter really kind of brings these these threads together um i'm mindful of our time. I've taken up so much of your time already. And so um, our traditional last question on our podcast usually is asking, um, what are things that you're working on now? And I ask this mindful of the fact that we're in in a very difficult global moment. So I I do also hope that you're taking care of yourself and staying well and recognize that we don't all have the luxury of time that perhaps we had before to work on things. But are there things that you were working on before this all happened? Or things that perhaps we can expect from you down the road one day when we have Time to continue our research projects. Yes,
0: um, so I was—I had already started um, before the pandemic, and I was—I'm um, I'm glad that I was able to travel for my my next project, my next book. Is specifically, we can see that we can say that this is an extension of uh, what I I already have presented in my last chapter, but I'm going to look at from a, from a different perspective in a sense that um, one of the key aspects of, of liberal feminisms on mainstream uh, western feminism's ideas about women's rights and freedom and equality is that one key aspect is that they they should be financially independent so their freedom is imagined within um this idea they in order to be uh free and and have equal rights, women also should uh, be economically, financially independent. So I have conducted interviews with Pakistani educated and uh, working women, and I'm exploring what does it mean for them um, to, uh, to be an educated and working woman, and how do they see themselves as their liberation about their rights? And, um, and how do they see uh, within an Islamic perspective, how uh, by uh, working uh, and I'm talking about uh, here, um, professional women, like well, the interviews that I have done, they are doctors, engineers, business women, um, professors. So I'm talking about that class. So what kind of identity and they themselves see see as working women, but also identify themselves as Muslim working women. So I'm trying to figure out that, uh, or examine the mainstream feminist ideas about being financially independent. Does it really give um, those Muslim educated women independence the way mainstream feminists imagine, or are they see themselves in any different light. Yes, so I'm I'm exploring those ideas.
1: Oh, that sounds very fantastic and I look forward to that project as well. Um Tabassum, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really grateful for your time and for having a conversation about your book um uh, with with us. Um I hope you stay well and talk to you soon.
0: Thank you, Shibana. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's my
1: pleasure. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Professor Tabasim Fahim Ruby about her new book, Muslim Women's Rights, Contesting Liberal Secular Sensibilities in Canada, which is published by Rutledge. Thank you so much for having joined us for another episode. We're so happy to have you along with us. And I hope you join us again next time. Until then, please stay well and take care.